This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Type. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Laurie Rader Day. Hey, I'm Lou Bernie. This is Lawrence Block. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. Excellent question. I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types with Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery podcast. I'm Eric Beatner, and with me is S.W. Loudon. And Steve, you know, today we're doing it a little differently because it's our Halloween episode. That's right. Today we're talking to horror writers like John Horner Jacobs, who tells us what he's really afraid of. I'm not that great on Brussels sprouts. I don't really like them. And Daniel Krauss tells us what we always suspected. Somebody in your neighborhood is trying to murder you. Plus, Almakatsu has some love for a group of folks who don't get a lot of positive recognition. And that's not to say cannibals are monsters. I'm sure cannibals have their reasons, too. Plus, the Malmans are here with some recommended Halloween reads. And we learn from all our guests what their best costume ever was. So, Steve, are, are you a horror book fan? You know, I've read Stephen King and I've read a few other things, but I wouldn't say I'm somebody who spends a lot of time with horror. How about you? I used to be in high school and, and then in college. Uh, I, I Not so much lately. I, I've, I dip in and out and I, I usually enjoy it when I read it, but I think stuff has to come highly recommended. You know, I am reading a series right now that features monsters. Does that count? Oh, that totally counts, yeah. Well, you, you know how much of a fan I am of Blake Crouch's Dark Matter and Recursion. I finally got around to going back and reading the Wayward Pines trilogy. Did, did you read that series? Uh, I read the first one, and then uh, I saw the series uh, that was made from it, yeah. So I'm not letting myself see the series until I finish all three books. But lucky for me, I'm in the middle of The Last Town, which is the third book in the series, uh, you know, it's fun for me as a fan of his more recent books to go back and sort of see how he developed as a writer. Um, I think a lot of the bones of the writer he becomes in Dark Matter and Recursion are already there in Wayward Pines. And it's just kind of fun to kind of spend time with a, a little younger and a slightly less successful Blake Crouch. But I, I am loving these books um, and I would definitely recommend them to anybody who's not read them yet. Yeah, I definitely I find I prefer short stories when I read horror for some reason. I don't know why. And and I think I, part of that might've been because I did, like so many people, I started with those Stephen King short stories, you know, the stuff that was in Skeleton Crew. I mean, I've, I remember, I mean, I was what, maybe 13 or 14 when I read that stuff and that story, The Monkey. Did, did you read that one? Yeah. With the, the, oh, that story freaked me out. <laughs> well, that's the intent, right? I, yeah, I guess you're right. There you go. <laughs> Well done, Mr. King. <laughs> Every once in a while, he gets it right. <laughs> well, first up for this Halloween episode is author John Horner Jacobs. And John is the author of Southern Gods, This Dark Earth, and the Twelve-Fingered Boy Trilogy. And now he's back with a pair of novellas in one book, and it's called A Lush and Seething Hell, which I think describes most Mondays for me. <laughs> You always have reminded me a little bit of Garfield. <laughs> well, John, your new book, A Lush and Seething Hell, is really two stories in one, but it's Halloween. It's not Christmas. What did we do to deserve a gift like this, two in one? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, do you really deserve it? Well, I... No, but I was going to point that out. <laughs> um, it's a weird book deal. So I wrote a novella and then my, I sent it to my agent and it was like, hey, uh, do you think you could sell this? She got back to me in a couple of days and she said, yeah, I'll sell this. And uh, I was hoping it would sell to Tor because Tor was, uh, you know, McMillan, Tor, Forge. Um, I was hoping it would sell there because that's like sort of my dream publisher. Right. Uh, and they actually did offer on it, but then another uh, Harper Collins offered and, but they wanted to make it a bigger deal and they wanted another novella. That's how the sort of double novella thing came about though. I, I went and wrote long on the second novella and it's really a short novel. They're not necessarily connected. It's, it's just two, two different uh, flavors of John Horner Jacobs in one volume. 
Well, no, I mean, so everyone's like, they're two different stories. I, I honestly think of them as one, one more, one piece. Now they are two different stories with two different sets of characters. However, they were written to be companions. They're also both sort of in my sort of shared universe. Also, they mirror each other in the way that they both deal with stories within stories. They both deal with found sort of footage, found manuscripts, uh, found recordings. Both have meta conversations about the story within the story. I consciously did that. But I mean, they, they really were meant to fit together. Uh, John, you've written a lot about music, specifically the blues, and and we know that you play. What is it about music that makes you think of dark stories? I, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of music that's really dark that I really don't get into. I'm not really a, you know, a doom metal, black metal. I, I don't like metal, and I, and I like you know some classic rock, but I like the the sort of mythic folklorish quality of roots music, not just um, blues, but folk music and even jazz and sort of like the, the oral traditions that come with it. You know, it's interesting with, with any blues song, there are 30, 40 different versions. And that sort of fascinates me. It's storytelling in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's more, you know, it's often more narrative. And, and also I grew up uh, going to, you know, the Helena Blues Fest and seeing blues guys. And then when I was older and started playing, it was the Horde tour. I don't know if you guys remember the Horde <laughs> yeah, I've, tour. Yeah, I've been to the Horde tour. Yeah, me too. But it was like Blues Traveler and, you know, Fish and Widespread Panic and all these jam bands. And I was in a lot of jam bands back then. And a lot, there was this weird confluence here in the South of jam band venues and blues venues. So you would go like... One night, there might be like some scorching blues player playing at this a venue in town. And then the next night, it might be like a freeform ja- uh, you know, jam band. So that's how I really sort of got immersed in like more blues. You mentioned uh, metal and classic rock. So I think the natural question here is, which is more horrific to you, Slayer or Air Supply? <laughs> I've heard Air Supply, and I don't know if I've ever listened to Slayer, so I would just say Air Supply. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, as long as we're talking about music and horror around Halloween time, what songs are on a constant loop in your own personal lush and seething hell? Uh, uh, well, I mean, recently it's been Stagger Lee. Because the second story in A Lush and Seething Hell is called My Heart Struck Sorrow. It's about a ethnomusicologist loosely based on Alan Lomax, who's uh, sort of obsessed with the infernal verses of Stagger Lee. Police officer, how can it be? You can rest everybody but cruel Stagger Lee. That bad man, oh cruel Stagger Lee. Stagger Lee is a classic um, song. Oh, yeah. And most people just are aware of the sort of uh, rhythm and blues, the African-American modality of that song. There is a sort of Caucasian modality that's very folky that you can hear like uh, Dave Von, Van Ronk play or Woody Guthrie or just a lot of uh, white sort of old classic folk players play. And it's, it's kind of lame in the sense that it's real sort of straight <laughs> and... It's very moralistic, you know, it's got this sort of chorus of he's a bad man, Stagger Lee. So I, I don't really gravitate towards those, but it's fascinating. I, I mean, I really became a student of this song writing this book. It's really a, like looking at the differences in the song is a real sociological sort of exploration uh, in the differences between white and black culture. It's like the difference between the Little Richard version of Tutti Frutti and the Pat Boone version, right? <laughs> Right, yeah. It is, uh, let's just say, not quite as uh, funky as Little Richard version. <laughs> right, right. Eric, uh, how many episodes have you been trying to work Pat Boone into the conversation? Uh, this would be 43 now. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Okay. Well done. Congratulations. Well, I, you know, when you have as deep a well of Pat Boone knowledge as I do, you, you're just waiting to bring that out at a dinner party sometime. So this was the perfect opportunity. Thank you, John. No, I think somebody's got a Pat Boone book in them for sure. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and on the gallows, head well high, 
At twelve o'clock they kill him, is all glad to see him die. That bad man, oh Christagli. Well, John, you uh, obviously have a very fertile imagination that also comes with a very dark streak. Uh, was there a, a turning point somewhere in your youth where you kind of turned to the dark side? <laughs> you, you know, um, I've sort of been thinking about that. Like, you know, a lot of it was probably, you know, my dad, both his influence and his absence, my parents' sort of absence. Like when I was a kid, when my dad and my mom were around, they're still together. And, and I had a great childhood. Don't, I'm not going to like, but they did leave me alone for long periods of time. It's just like as an adult, I'm starting to realize how much I was just sort of left to my own devices. But um, <laughs> that's a generational thing. I can very much relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I would never do it to, to my kids. But, you know, no. I was like they started leaving me alone when I was like 10, like for weekends, you know, like leaving yeah. down. I was like 10, nine or 10. Yeah, we, we would be arrested today for the things that my dad got away with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, he started me off, uh, you know, I think one night was like, come on, let's watch this movie. And it was like Bella Lugosi's Dracula. And then like another night we watched Tarantula. And then another night we watched, you know, Frankenstein. You know, we would watch this the late night horror shows. And then my local librarian, once I started checking out books, my local librarian was like, hey, well, you like that, you might like this, you know, and gave me some more classics. And then I was introduced to this author. I don't know, maybe I was like eight at the time, but I was introduced to this author, John Belairs, uh, who wrote these sort of gothic horror. Uh, they, they had covers by Edward Gorey. And, oh, wow. um, and so that's really probably the sort of the thing that sealed my fate. My librarian started feeding me the good shit. <laughs> So, you, but you so you were drawn to it at a young age, yeah. And then being left alone at the, at the time, I guess uh, in '81 I was ten, so we had a Betamax at the time, and you could rent Betamax movies at That's Entertainment and Little Rock. You know, I was riding my bike up and renting renting movies, and they they always had a great horror section. So on those weekends, my parents were gone. I would rent five or six movies and just sort of plow through them. You like what you like. Uh, yeah. sometimes, sometimes it's just like, I'm not, I'm not that great on Brussels sprouts. I don't really like them. You, you know, <laughs> you, you, you like what you like. All right, John, this is our Halloween episode. So okay. we want to know from you and from all of our guests, what was your best ever Halloween costume? Darth Vader. <laughs> oh, no hesitation. I, he I, was I, waiting for it. Yeah. No, you know, I'm six two. I was skinny at the time. Um, I had the like a full mask. I made the rest of it. This is before you could buy all that stuff. But I was I was Darth Vader, and that was my best Halloween costume. Nice. Well, John, if if Eric and I were going to come over to your house on Halloween, and you were going to whip out the Betamax and pop in your favorite horror movie of all time, what movie would that be? You know, I just I just rewatched Fright Night with my youngest kid, and oh, we both just you know it's just always so good that that movie. But probably the thing is the one I go back to the mm -hmm. most. John Carpenter's thing nice um we just watched they lit um, all right my answer is the thing <laughs> but there are so many other good ones one of my proudest moments in life and the advantages of living in hollywood is i went i attended a screening of uh, big trouble in little china oh yeah kurt russell was there oh cool did a little q a afterwards i actually got called on to ask a question and i asked what i've always wanted to know which was after all the collaborations between him and Carpenter, it seems weird. They live seems like it was tailor made for Kurt Russell. So I asked him, I was like, w were you ever in the running for that? Did you talk about it? And it just schedules didn't work out. Was that supposed to be you? And he said, no. And I was very disappointed. <laughs> well, Rowdy, Rowdy Piper does a great job. He does an okay job. Come on. Kurt would have been better. <laughs> yeah, of course, Kurt. Yes, he would have. Apparently, did you know this? That the last words Walt Disney said was Kurt Russell. That was that was his <laughs> dying words. At the time, <laughs> Kurt Russell was a child star at Disney. Yeah. It would have been a little bit weirder if his last words were Rowdy Roddy Piper. <laughs> <laughs> no, it would have been better. I mean, seriously, Eric, picture it. You've got Rowdy Roddy Piper in the middle of a ring 
with thousands of fans looking on, and he's spinning Walt Disney over his head and threatening him to throw him over into the audience. Imagine it. Oh, I can Im- I've imagined it many times, yeah. <laughs> As have I, which explains my tattoo, which we can talk about later. <laughs> Well, next up is a book that actually takes place on Halloween. I mean, with a theme like that, we got to feature it in this episode, right, Eric? Exactly. It's called Blood Sugar by Daniel Krause. And Daniel's already made quite a name for himself in horror circles by co-writing The Shape of Water, which became the Oscar-winning film by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, And then he also co-wrote the upcoming novel, The Living Dead, which was a novel started and then left behind by George Romero. I mean, that kind of begs the question, what's he doing slumming with you and I? (laughs) You could ask that about any and all of our guests. I guess that's accurate. Well, his latest book, Blood Sugar, is a really unique take on the old urban myth of putting razor blades and poison in Halloween candy, told in a sort of -of one-of-a-kind voice. Daniel Krauss, thank you for joining us uh, on our Halloween episode of Writer Types. Uh, Blood Sugar has a really unique first-person voice. It was quite stunning to read, honestly. Did, did that just happen as you started the story, or did it take time to find this really unique style? It maybe took a little while, but mostly it began as sort of aping these... Uh, kids I used to see on the L train. I would see this trio of boys and they were so horrible in some ways that, that, you know, they were occasionally sexist and always talking about getting up to no good. Uh, But there was also something so alive about them. They were filled with uh, life and, uh, and love for each other. And I, I just found them so intriguing, and I was always so pleased when I got to sit on the same train cars with them. Now, is this something that you do a lot? Is it, you look around the world around you, and, and you're pulling story inspiration from everything you see? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that I can't think of another example where I pulled so directly. I mean, the, the voice of Blood Sugar is not the voice of these kids exactly, but uh, I liked how I couldn't always tell what they were talking about. You know, they would refer to things sort of in their own language, you know, using words or euphemisms I didn't understand. That kind of thing I pulled into the book. Well, we all grew up with these stories of razor blades in Halloween candy. Is that just an urban myth or did you actually find examples of that happening in the real world when you did your research? It's ge- it's generally an urban myth. And, you know, it's got to be one of America's most pervasive urban myths. Oh, yeah. But I guess why it's so powerful is that it's so plausible and it would be so easy to do. Halloween is such a, a strange holiday where we do the exact thing we tell kids not to ever do. You know, walking up to people's door, walking up to strangers, asking for food from them. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's this really dangerous activity that suddenly for one night a year, we just let everyone do. Uh, and it would be very, very easy to, you know, take that trust and, really do something terrible. You're in Chicago, right? Yeah. Are there any urban legends specific to Chicago that we should know about? I don't know that there are specific ones to Chicago. Generally, the most powerful ones are the ones that can exist anywhere. That's true. Yeah, yeah they, they get passed around from any city to any city, I guess. I think the power from them is, that, is exactly because they're not locational. You know, they can be literally anywhere, and that's how they spread the poison Halloween candy that doesn't even need to be urban. You know, that yeah. can be literally anywhere. You know, he right. was, he was hoping you were going to say that there's a legend about a razor blade in an Italian beef. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, that would probably hide it pretty well. <laughs> it's so powerful as a kid when this happens to you, because I know lots of people who, and maybe you guys too, remember their parents checking their candy. And I, they probably, parents probably still do, right? Oh yeah. Yep. And I remember, I remember, you know, one house handed out, I lived in a small town in Iowa. One house handed out homemade like muffins or something. Those just went directly into the trash. Yep. And what was so 
jarring is you just had this great fun night and suddenly there's this possibility thrown into the mix that somebody in your neighborhood is trying to murder you. <laughs> you know, that's very alarming. It I, is. I remember there would be um, these nice older women that would hand out apples or try to do something that wasn't sugar-based. And yeah. all that would end up being is several of us boys getting into really heated apple fights in the middle of the yep. street. Yeah, there was one. There was one house that gave away pencils. Oh, that was the worst. And then there'd always be a place that'd give you like a dime or a quarter or something. And that's real lazy. No. <laughs> All right. Well, Daniel, from reading this book, I honestly can't tell if you love or hate Halloween. I love Halloween. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's got probably goes without saying. I mean, I'm a, I'm a horror guy, so it's it's uh, my favorite holiday. Um, I do have good memories um, trick-or-treating as a kid. But generally, it was a, a lawless night. <laughs> that's that's the best kind of night when you're a kid. <laughs> per- permission to, to embrace everything that's scary and weird and uh, live on the dangerous edge there, if only for one dusk. <laughs> exactly. I think you just described my 20s, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> um. So the back of the book name checks Clockwork Orange. Uh, mm-hmm. Was that, or are there any other specific novels that were an inspiration for you? No, I had never thought about a Clockwork Orange um, as a touch point, and I, I understand uh, where that's coming from because the kids are the kid who's narrating the story has uh, he doesn't like to swear. He's been told not to swear, and so he substitutes other words for swear words, and so you get instead of. Fuck, he's his mighty duck because he saw the mighty ducks on TV. <laughs> so no, that I, I can't think of really any books that directly influenced this one. Although I've always been a fan of books that have a very uh, focused point of view, first person narrator. And you know, when you do that, you're going to lose people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the harder you lean into the voice. There can be some people who aren't going to like it, who aren't going to be able to take it. It's too much. It's too confusing. It's too, it takes some adjustment. The first few pages of such a book are always a little bit of a struggle. Yeah, well, it's, I, this exactly was my experience with the book. And it, it does sort of take a little bit of a readjustment in, in how you absorb this. I mean, to the point where you really kind of almost created your own punctuation even in this book. Yeah, well, actually, I, what I do is I just lose the punctuation. I mean, yeah. I, I think I have periods and question marks and exclamation points and commas. Uh, and that was a fun, That was as a writer, I mean, I love setting out for myself sort of little challenges. It kind of pushes you in a different direction. You start writing sentences differently when you don't have those tools. So you've co-written with filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro and George Romero. Uh, do they have a different approach to storytelling than you do? Oh, for sure. I mean, everyone's got different methods and different strengths and different weaknesses. Um, and collaboration is its own weird beast. You know, anytime you collaborate with somebody, it's a new type of challenge because you're dealing with uh, an entirely separate voice. And they've got their druthers and uh, tendencies. Uh, but ideally, you use those proactively and use those in a way that can uh, push yourself to do new things. You know, when I was working with the, the book left behind by George Romero that was unfinished, that that's probably the most, the starkest example of such a thing because he's not there now. You know, he died. So I don't, I can't come back to him and say, what about this or this? So I'm really left with, this is how he did it. Uh, I'm going to have to agree with some things. There are some things I'm going to have to disagree with and I'm just going to have to take out or modify but you know you don't want to you don't want to do that right up too much. You want to keep as much George Romero in there as possible. So you have to find all sorts of new ways to make things work. That if you were if it was just me, I would just completely do a completely different way. But instead, you have to you have to work around things and work with things, and it's a it pushes you in, in new directions. And again, that's that's something I always try to do is put myself in an unfamiliar, or uncomfortable, or new spot and write from it. Well, since we're on the subject of film, um, what is your favorite horror movie of all time? <laughs> it's so hard. It, I'm such a, a horror movie fan. It's really, really difficult to answer that question. I mean, the the film that sort of 
launched me as a human being was Night of the Living Dead. Uh, I saw that as a very young kid, maybe like five or six years old. Oh, wow. You know, so I guess that's my favorite. I, I know it backwards and forwards, and I think it's just a, you know, lightning in a bottle. It's, it's not the kind of film you can plan to make. It's just a, a perfect movie in a lot of ways. I think mine was Dawn of the Dead. I've, I've, when, oh, yeah. I, when I was in high school, I can't even imagine how many times I watched and rewatched that film. And I, I, I saw Dawn before Night, but then uh, I've, I was one of those kids. Like I, I had my Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead poster on my wall all lined up in a row. Nice. Uh, so we want to know from all of our guests this time, what was your best ever Halloween costume? Oh boy. I mean, I've got some, some bad ones. I mean, there's photos of me, you know, as a real little kid dressed up like a, a kitten or something. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I can't be too proud of those. I remember the last time that I went uh, trick or treating. It was the time where there's, there's always the last time when you're a little bit too old yeah. uh, and you know, this is not appropriate anymore. <laughs> I'm going to go out one more time. But I remember I, my friend Ben and I dressed up like, the vampires from the lost boys. Oh, cause, cause that was our favorite movie. Uh, you know, essentially there's nothing vampiric about how they dress. They just sort of dress like kind of punk hippie like mall rats from the eighties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, not so much like the Corey Haim character, oh, more, more like the vampire. So like leather jackets and, uh, a lot of hair, fake, a lot of, fake a hair lot of hairspray. Beatner goes straight to yeah. Corey Haim every time. He always goes straight to Corey Haim. <laughs> no, I, I despise that movie. Don't even get me started. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I, you know, I haven't, even though it was my favorite movie as a kid, I haven't seen it in 15, 20 years. I mean, I have no idea. Yeah, no, try, try it. You'll be horribly disappointed. It, okay. it, will, it will ruin your childhood. It's, it's an awful, awful movie. And well, I, I love being, I love ruining my childhood and being disappointed. So this was a great, <laughs> this was a great idea. That movie is the razor blade in the apple of horror cinema. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> oh, Eric. <laughs> Steve, you know who loves a good horror novel? Our pal Dan Malman. He's not going to talk about Stephen King again, is he? You know, even if he doesn't, I will bet you dollars to donuts he talks about something Stephen King adjacent, at least. I actually kind of love that about Dan. I love a lot about Dan. There's a lot to love about Dan. Isn't there? Aw. Well, let's go ahead and check in with Dan and his better half, Kate, to see what scary novels they recommend this Halloween. Hey, Steve and Eric, it's Kate. And Dan. And we're here with our October horror book review. So what what'd you read, Dan? So with all sorts of anticipation and excitement coming up for uh, Joe Hill's newest short story collection, Full Throttle, I realized I've never read any Joe Hill. So I went back to the beginning and I checked out his incredible debut, Heart-Shaped Box. Um, this book knocked me out. I think I'm really, really late to the party on this, but uh, Joe Hill really knocked it out of the park with his debut basically taking the idea of what would a sort of a hardcore rock and roller uh, with a penchant for the macabre do if he basically found a ghost on the internet. Very slim, stripped down storytelling that starts off on the on the creepy and as the story gets rolling along, uh, turns into a cross-country thrill ride that I could not put down. Totally late to the party on this but I'm now a a super Joe Hill fanboy. Uh, Back to you, Kate. Okay, so I picked up A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. It's told from a little girl's point of view. Her name is Mary, and her older sister Marjorie is possessed. And the family's run on hard times, so in order to help pay some bills, the family agrees to become part of a reality TV show where Marjorie has an exorcism on TV. And the book is actually told in flashback from Mary's point of view, and she kind of lays out what happened, what the effects of having the TV show filmed in their house did to their family um, and to those around them. And he does an amazing job of sowing doubt throughout the entire book. Is Marjorie really possessed or not? So I think he did a really, really great job. The cover quote is, Head full of ghosts scared the living hell out of me, and I'm pretty hard to scare from Stephen King. And yeah, he he doesn't mess around. Um, it is a great horror read for this time of year. 
Hope you guys are reading something spooky on your end. Well, Steve, those uh, books are definitely ones that I think people should read around the Halloween season. But you know what I want to know that we didn't learn right there is I wanted to know what Dan and Kate's best costumes were. Seems kind of like a private question to ask a married couple. (laughs) No, Halloween costumes. Yeah, ask them. (laughs) You know, when I was a little kid, like I had one of those original store-bought costumes. Uh, Mine was Captain Hook. So it was this awful um, hard plastic mask, you know, with tiny little uh, eye holes that your eyelashes would blink up against and this crappy little uh, rubber band strap across the back. And it was, you'd like step into it like this one piece, like jumpsuit thing. Um, And I would always tell my parents, I don't have a hook. I don't have a hook. And my mom was always just, you know, bend your finger. And it's, I was walking around I couldn't see anything, and I looked like I had awful arthritis. And it was freaking cold because it's Halloween in Minnesota. So I had a snow jacket on over the costume. Uh, But I ended up wearing it probably five years running, longer. Um, True story. So I was kind of scarred by Halloween going forward. Kate, how about you? My parents were never the, we're going out and buying you a costume family. So as a child, the costumes were rather, well, you're a bridesmaid because here's my mom's old bridesmaid dress and you're going to be a North High School cheerleader with a letter jacket. So here's your dad's old letter jacket. So as an adult, I've become very creative at making my own costume. So one year I actually dressed up as the road. So I wore all black, put reflective tape down the middle as the center median I had little cars with Velcro that I Velcroed on. So there was one spot where they were crashed. I actually took a stuffed animal, kind of beat it up, put it on my shoulder, and it was uh, roadkill. So I think that was my most favorite costume. And it was a fun time to actually, like, you know, beat up on a stuffed animal. I don't know about you, Eric. I totally buy Dan as a pirate, but I'm going to give Kate extra points for creativity. Absolutely. Uh, Although I'm a little disappointed that Dan didn't do that entire thing in a pirate voice. That wasn't his pirate voice? (laughs) (laughs) Well, last up is author Almakatsu, author of the award-winning novel The Hunger. This dark reimagining of the ill-fated Donner Party journey west in the 1800s earned the highest praise a horror novel can get, Steve, A blurb from Stephen King. Wow. You know, and I like to call Stephen King the other Steve. Me too. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I had to take on this interview alone because you had other things to do. But, you know, secretly, I'm thinking that it might have been because you were just too scared. Well, yeah. When I saw that she had a blurb from Stephen, I was like, oh, did I blurb her? And then I saw (laughs) King and then I was like, yeah, man, I don't know. This is why you don't read scary books. You're just too too afraid. I am. <laughs> You're like a little mouse. <laughs> Steven, the other mouse. <laughs> it's our special Halloween episode of Writer Types, so thank you, Almakatsu, for joining us. Now, Halloween is a holiday that's all about eating, and in a way, so is your book, The Hunger. <laughs> so... Of course, you are revisiting this historical event of the Donner Party. And aside from the obvious fact that it's a fascinating story that kind of intrigues, I think, anyone who hears it, why revisit this particular historical event? You know, it's one of those things in history that I think a lot of people have heard of, but they don't really know much about it. You know, they always know the ending, but didn't really realize how much more there was to the story. I mean, this was a 1,400-mile trip. And once I started doing the research, and, you know, like everybody else, I had heard about the Donner Party in school. But once I started digging in, I realized, holy cow, this is an amazing story. It wasn't just what happened at the end. Crazy things happened all along the way. And so, you know, I just saw the potential in the story. Yeah, when you have an ending like that, there's got to be some drama that leads up to it. <laughs> well, now, for for your next book, even The Deep, you've turned to history again. I mean, it sounds like you seem to view any historical event, no matter how well documented it might be, 
there's always something more to know there. Is that right? You know, I mean, that is kind of the thing. Once you start scratching the surface of any story, you start finding all these other things that just make it fascinating. So for instance, for the the deep, the next book, it goes into the sinking of the Titanic, but also its sister ship, the Britannic, which was commandeered as a um, hospital ship for World War One. And as I'm trying to harness some of the actual history, but writing this fictional story, so I would go to the the list of passengers and crew on the Titanic, and it's just such an incredibly well documented uh, historical event. You can find biographies on literally every person who was on that ship when it went down. Oh wow! And darn it, if every single one of them that I touched wasn't fascinating, all <laughs> people had such interesting lives. And the lesson I took away from that is we all have really interesting lives. It's just a matter of looking at them closely enough, and then all of the unique, you know, wonderful aspects come up. So if I die tragically, you're saying you could dig into my life and probably find something there that's worthy of writing a book about. You know, I think there's probably a book about everybody's life. Yeah. Uh, my life might be like a novella or, or a little pamphlet, maybe. <laughs> I, I feel a challenge has been thrown down. <laughs> well, I have to die tragically first, so you just have to wait for that. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Don't be so excited about that idea. No, no, I mean, you know, you're one of the few brave souls that would tempt fate like that. (laughs) Great. I've just jinxed myself into an early death is what you're saying. Oh, let's hope not. (laughs) Well, so we're talking about horror novels on this episode. Now, let me know, I mean, from your point of view, is it more terrifying to have a knife-wielding maniac or are you more drawn to horrors from within? the human condition? Well, definitely horrors from within. So first of all, I never really started out to be a horror writer. Although like a lot of people, I enjoyed horror stories, especially growing up. You know, I think I was eight years old when I started reading Edgar Allan Poe, for instance. But in my my other life, my professional career, which I uh, retired from a few years ago, I worked in intelligence for for the well-known intelligence agencies. And for a long time, my primary focus was on humanitarian issues, which includes genocides and mass atrocities. So when you, yeah, that usually just stops the conversation dead (laughs) right there. But when you do that kind of work, you're really exposed to just the most horrible things that humans are capable of. So once, (laughs) once you see that in people, writing horror stories is very easy. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a knife wheeling maniac. It's, you know, you start to see the horror in everyday life. Wow. Yeah, I'm a lot of fun. <laughs> Remind me not to invite you to any dinner parties. I tell you, it's uh, it's rough. Yeah. <laughs> well, now earlier today you attended a writers' conference. I know. Yep, I'm at the James River Writers' Conference. Do you like to impart uh, tips and, and wisdom to new writers? Well, I'm a bossy little thing, so yes. Um, <laughs> And it's so much fun. You just meet all these people who, you know, you're all bound together by the love of writing. It's just, you're just at different stages in, in, in you know, your journey. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like you're sharing secrets or is it all very straightforward in terms of like, if you put in the time, you do the work, you, you, you do the research, it's all going to come together. Or are you able to share a little bit of the kind of alchemy that, that comes with writing a full length novel? You know, it's interesting you use the word alchemy because I do think that's the way most people, and even I, it's you finish a book and you go, oh, holy crap, how did I manage that? You know, it's, <laughs> like, it's like magic. But there's definitely, you know, I don't want to say steps or rules, but there's things that you do. Um, and the more you do it, just like any anything else, you know, like becoming a, a golf pro or something. It's, so it's like, it's both, right? It's art and craft. You can learn all the craft but to cross over into the art, you know, is that diligent application and maybe something else. So, yeah, I think all writers are sort of fascinated by it. We love to compare process with each other, hoping that the other one has the magic formula that's going to make it easier the next time. Right. Uh, I think you're right, too. It's like even with your own work, it, sometimes you don't know how it all came together. It, it's almost always a mystery for me.
Well, I, I know you had a long drive today to and from this conference. Uh, I, th I think I, I read that you might even be fighting a cold, and uh, and now you've got this podcast. I mean, <laughs> is being a writer has it ended up being more work than you thought? Well, you know, it's funny because you do this conference and you're meeting a lot of folks who are, you know, aspiring to be published. They're at various stages from, you know, rank, just starting writing to, you know, having written several novels and maybe they just haven't sold them. And I remember being at that stage and all you think about is, you know, just give me the chance and I will do anything, right, to, to be a published <laughs> author. And then, and you, you think you're ready for anything and then you get into it and you realize, holy crap, this is a lot of work, but it's, <laughs> it's, it is very rewarding. So the funny thing is, is, you know, I retired from government a couple of years ago and I had some pretty, pretty heavy lift jobs. I was the director of a research lab for a while. I ran a 200 person office and now that I'm retired, I am so much more busier than I was <laughs> when I had that full-time job. So you've got to be careful what you ask for, I guess. The actual writing of the book is the easy part, I guess. God, I love it when I can actually write. Yeah. <laughs> well, since this is our Halloween episode, we're asking all of our guests the, the same questions. So uh, what is the best Halloween costume you yourself have ever come up with? Ooh, I'm really... Bad. So for one thing, I'm very old, so I haven't worn a Halloween costume in a long time. And back when I did, I was pretty lame. So I'm <laughs> afraid I'm not going to be able to help you. Boy, you see some great ones, though, these days, right? On Instagram and Pinterest, people are so uh, creative. They, they go the extra mile, yeah. Yeah, I saw somebody had crocheted an alien costume, you know, with the big head, the Geiger alien, wow. for their child. Crocheted it. And it looked great. I couldn't compete with that. So, well, then the other thing we want to know is, given that it's the season, do you have a, a go-to horror movie that you like to watch around Halloween time? I'll tell you one thing: is there's a new streaming service for horror called Shutter. Yes. And yeah, so I subscribe to it mostly because they started this new show. It's like a reboot of Creep Show. Ah, yes. And in addition to going back and kind of looking at classic horror stories, like the first episode had a, a older Stephen King church story, they're also getting some of the best new horror writers to write new material for the show. They had Josh Mailerman's story, The House of the Head, which was about a haunted dollhouse that oh, wow. was just transcendent. I mean, he's such an amazing writer. He's such an artist. I mean, there's just such good horror writing coming out right now we, uh, there's a lot of talk about like this new age of horror coming and it's i'm really starting to see this crossover um where psychological suspense now is kind of skirting into the horror territory which to me makes perfect sense i mean sus yeah. that psychological suspense is about a very personal terror and that's what horror is about i think you're right i think the idea of horror has morphed a little bit away from monsters or like you know the knife wielding maniacs we talked about earlier and it is now more the horrors kind of inside your own head and i think i think that's true in books and in movies like a lot of the horror movies nowadays it's less about a creature coming to get you or you know a slasher film kind of thing and it's more about these deep-rooted psychological explorations that are yes scary but in in the end they end up being about so much more yes I, I honestly, I get asked almost every day to blurb another book that's sort of in that area. And they're just great. I mean, there's one called Soon by Lois Murphy. She's an Australian writer. And she actually won some kind of like amateur writing contest with this book. And I was so busy at the time. I was like, okay, I don't know when I can get to it. And I started reading a few pages and I could not stop reading it. It was <laughs> so good. And it, it like Josh Mailerman's Bird Box, it's um, this kind of horror story where they never really explain what the cause of the horror is. It's yes. there and it's oh, this existential thing you have to deal with. And it's just amazing. So I'm seeing more and more of those kinds of books and they're just great. Well, and uh, you know, getting back to your book, The Hunger, I mean, I think it's safe to say that there are horrific things that happen, but 
it would not be so horrific if not for the relationships between the characters and the idea that there are families on this trip and and that has its own thing and then you're also mixing in strangers traveling with each other and going through all these harrowing experiences i mean that relationship between the characters is what really draws out the horror because it suddenly makes it relatable right right well you know it's almost impossible i think for modern day people to imagine what the settlers voluntarily undertook in in going to the west coast because yeah. oh, it seems crazy the, the whole idea of it seems like no it's amazing that anybody survived well, that's what i think you know these days we carry cell phones around with us all the time you know we <laughs> practically have oxygen bottles on our hips we definitely carry water with us all the time no sane person would undertake what the settlers did back then they were going into the wilderness with no roads no communication no food no water and they just were hoping they were going to find it along the way it's insane and so when you think about that and then you think well what was it that drove these people to do that well some of them had to be running away from something right (laughs) to take on some a trip like that and it's not uh, what i try to stress to people is the story isn't like a biography of the donner party but it's to use that to to sort of address a bigger theme and that is you know under what circumstances does a man turn into a monster, basically. And that's not to say cannibals are monsters. I'm sure cannibals have their reasons too. But um, you know, <laughs> well, it's just that. Let's not let them off the hook so easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Almakatsu, thank you for joining us. And uh, you, I've learned two things. I do not want to invite you to a dinner party, and I definitely do not want to go on a road trip with you. There you go. Wise man. <laughs> Well, Steve, how did I do on my own? You know, I, even though I don't like doing it without you. Well, you know, buddy, I actually think it was pretty good practice. Why do you say that? Not sure how to break this to you, Eric, but this is going to be my last show on writer types. Oh, no. I know. I'm sad. And I'm sad even though I knew this before. <laughs> I'm sad saying it, and I'm the one who came up with the idea to leave the show. <laughs> Oh, well, Steve, you will be missed. And Eric, I will miss working with you. Uh, You know, the truth of the matter is I'm just so busy these days and I cannot even keep my thoughts straight. And it's not fair to you and it's not fair to the guests. Um, It's certainly not fair to my family, to my wife and kids. Um, So I've got to step back from something and create a little bit more room. And unfortunately, it made the most sense uh, to leave writer types. Uh, But I am really, really proud of what you and I have built together over the last two or three years. Uh, I've loved working with you and getting to know you better. I've really loved working with the Malmans and their contributions to the show. And I'm really proud of all of the amazing authors we've gotten to speak to since we came up with this idea after a mostly empty book signing in Orange County. I remember it well. (laughs) Well... What do you say, Steve? One last time, what did we learn today? John Horner Jacobs taught us that there is life after being into jam bands. Daniel Krauss taught us to watch out for your neighbors. They might be trying to kill you. And Almakatsu taught us that cannibals aren't such bad people. Well, I'll tell you what I learned, Steve. In two years of doing this show with you, I've learned that you are one of my favorite people in or out of the crime writing community. I kind of wish we found each other earlier in life because I'm sure we would have been instant friends back when we were both playing in bands. There's simply no way I could have ever done this show without you. And the only reason that I'm going to keep this show going is with your approval and your blessing. The show will always be better with you, but I will try my best to keep up the quality of what we've built here together. And of course, uh, you know, you cannot get rid of me out of your life so easily. I'm sure we'll, we'll still see each other. And every time I see you, I hope that, and I'm sure I will feel the same way I do now when we speak, whether in person or over microphones for the show. Uh, My day is a little bit better for having talked to you. I know I'm going to come away with a smile. And I do indeed learn something from you every time we're together, Steve. Well, Eric, those feelings are all mutual. Uh, I think that if you and I had known each other when we were younger, you probably would have killed me. (laughs) (laughs) That's entirely possible. (laughs) Just being honest. 
Um, but at the same time, while you were uh, choking me out and, I, and the, everything was going black and the sound was starting to wobble, um, we might have started a band. <laughs> <laughs> Which I would have kicked you out of. Oh, God, 100%. I'd have left before the first practice. No, Eric, it's been a real pleasure. And you know what? I really do hope that you keep the show going. I know you're going to do a fantastic job with whatever uh, the show, whatever shape the show takes moving forward. Um, you have my, all of my support. Uh, I can't wait to listen in purely as a listener because I will be. Well, thank you so much. I, I mean, a- along the way, I've I've learned a ton about the books that you love and and the music that you love that we both feel passionate about. I learned that you are also, you're a tremendous talent in many fields. Uh, I'm proud to call you a friend and a colleague, uh, you know, and I've also learned that you have a soft spot for some really bad hair metal bands of the eighties. And yeah. Steve, some things cannot be forgiven. So in the end, you're dead to me. Well, I mean, I, I only posted that uh, album cover of Poison, Look What the Cat Dragged In to make this breakup a little bit easier. Well, it worked. (laughs) Well, it's up to you to decide if I really meant it in earnest when I posted how much I love that album. I I feel like you did. Love doesn't even begin to approach how I feel about that album. It's top three, probably top one. (laughs) Don't go out this way. (laughs) Okay, okay, let's talk about Warrant or uh, Cinderella. No. (laughs) Well, despite Steve leaving, the show will go on. So please subscribe, and if you get a chance, uh, take a time to rate the show. And I will keep saying it, S.W. Loudon is a writer who you should read for his both his crime fiction and his new essay collection all about power pop called Go All The Way, which he co-edited. And you can find out what Steve will be up to next on swloudon.com. And Eric, just once again, thank you so much for uh, all the partnership and the friendship and the good times we've had in the show. I highly suggest you check out his writing at ericbeatner.com. Continue listening to this podcast. And thank you for listening all along and for the support. I will miss making this show for you guys, but I know it will be better going forward. We better watch out, Steve. We're almost getting sincere here in the end. Oh, you're cutting all of this. (laughs) 